This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. So today is a first, because it is the first time I've had somebody on the podcast for the second time, but it has been hugely requested to have Dr. Jaffe, Dr. Eddie Jaffe back. And of course, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. So thank you. Welcome back. Wow, I feel uh, even more honored. I didn't realize that. And, um, and so thank you. Thank you for making me the first second appearance. First, second appearance. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, the one that we did before just has gotten over and over. We send it to people. People have questions about all sorts of stuff, naltrexone, stuff like that. And it's been just such a popular episode. And I thought, especially with your new book coming out, it would be awesome to have you back and um, chat. Yeah, yeah. Always fun to talk to you. So what is going on? Why don't you, why don't you start actually with the book? Because I think that this is probably one of the most like fascinating things that's happening right now. Yeah. Oh, wow. thank you. So I uh, wrote this book, The Abstinence Myth. You know, I've been wanting to write a book forever. I mean, I was talking to you about it when we met. I don't even know when that was at this point, but uh, at the harm reduction conference. And I was pregnant. So it was definitely almost two years ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it's crazy. Time flies. But we, um, when we met, I was already for years, I'd been mulling over an idea for a book, but I you know, I, honestly, I didn't want to create another in my field and in kind of the academic world of addiction. There are all these tomes, all these 350 page books that explore the meaning of addiction and what it is. And I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to create something that would be useful for people that they could pick up. This thing is like 120 pages. Uh, it started as 500 pages. And thankfully, my editor helped me cut it down. But I wanted to create something that was really, really useful for people. And then the other thing, as you know, through the work that I've done and the first conversation we ever had sitting on the floor there in San Diego, um, the thing that I wanted to make clear that people understood right off the bat is just how anti the status quo I am. And so we ended up calling the book, The Abstinence Myth. Um, and I, you know, it's, I couldn't really be much clearer about some of the problems that I have with the field in them. But it's a, it's a mix between like the academic view of where addiction has gone now and actionable. Every chapter ends with exercises and there's a three, a three principle nine step kind of plan for people to follow along if they want to get help with their struggles and whether those struggles are with alcohol, drugs, food, sex, gambling, uh, or anything in between. So I'm really excited about it. So the title is, I mean, it's basically like a little bit um, incendiary in, in the community because you're no basically saying that abstinence is a myth. So why? Why do you say this? So there are a lot of different reasons. There are kind of three different myths that I really talk about in the book primarily. The first one is the myth of abstinence as the starting point for recovery. And I think it's one of the most unfortunate things, and I will scream this from every you know, rooftop that I get and I use my, use my soapbox to say this as many times as possible because we have grown up to understand that it's a necessity that like, if you're not willing to commit to abstinence, you're not ready for recovery. People literally will tell others who want to go to rehab, who want to get help, come back when you're ready to quit. Um, the problem with that is, and I, you know, I didn't bring charts or anything like that for sharing screen, but you've seen this stuff. A new study just came out 
we are losing more and more people every year. And that trend has been ongoing for decades. And so my point that I make to a lot of people is, look, I don't care what you believe in. The current system isn't working, period. If, we're, if more people are dying from drug addiction every single year, we have to change something and we have to stop blaming them. And I put, the way I talk about it in the book, I put placing abstinence as what I call the guard at the gate for recovery as one of the first problems that we need to stop. Uh, and I know, you've incorpor- I know you've incorporated that into your work as well. Well, I mean, I find it so interesting because I actually heard this really recently. So I, um, I have like a kind of live three month coaching program and some of the participants in there, she had, had gone into kind of more traditional methods a few times. And she was told by someone, she went and sat down with someone and this might've been a unique situation to her. So it's not a blanket statement, but she sat down with this woman and she said, I would love for you to be my sponsor. And this woman said, I can't be your sponsor because I don't think that you're ready to quit. And she goes, come back and talk to me when you're ready to quit. And that was so like jarring to me because everything that I have done has been like, okay, let's ask the question. Let's start to question our drinking. Let's enter it at a very like very low key. Hmm. You know, what's going on here? Let's get curious. It's yeah, but Annie, nobody does that from quitting. Nobody does that. What everybody does is, Hey, you're an alcoholic. You have to quit drinking. That's what everybody does. It's not a unique situation for her. It's a, um, it's the most prevalent thing that ends up happening is, Oh, you're an alcoholic. You must quit. And the point I make is again, you, you know about some of my research, but when I was a postdoc at UCLA and I did research, more than 50% of my participants said that um, a very important or important reason why they didn't enter treatment because they, they like drinking or using too much to quit. Everybody else said the exact same thing that this woman's potential sponsor said, which is, well, you're not ready for help. And people would literally tell me this. Well, those participants are not motivated for help. And I said, why do you say that? The only reason they're in my study is because they were looking for treatment. That's how we recruited people. So you're telling me yeah, that- she's these- having a conversation saying, I would like you to be my sponsor. I think yeah. that's motivated. I am asking for help. And what we are telling them is, well, if you don't want this kind of help, then you're not really looking for help. So, and then we wonder why 90% of people, 90% of people don't go get treatment. They don't go get treatment because we are literally telling them what you want is not the right thing. Now, I don't know about you, but imagine if any other industry worked this way. Like imagine if when you went to the movies, they told you what movie you have to watch. Or imagine if you went to a restaurant and somebody said, well, today you are eating this dish. And you said, well, I don't want this dish. I was kind of hoping for this other thing that I've had here before. And they go, well, obviously you're not hungry. So don't, don't come in. It's freaking ridiculous. It's absurd. So the first myth to me is that we have to first commit to abstinence. Abstinence, if, is, is the, if it's the right thing for somebody, and I think for a lot of people it is the right thing, by the way. But if it's the right thing, that should come later. After we gave them help, abstinence should be there. So that's the first thing. The second piece is that abstinence is how we should measure, measure success. Mm-hmm. And my point about this, that myth, is how, like if you walk into an AA meeting or almost any time, how do you know if somebody's doing well? You ask them, how long, how long have you been sober? If they tell you four days, they're at this level of recovery. If they tell you 30 days, they're at this level of recovery. If they tell you 35 years, they're up here. We measure success by abstinence. But that's not what people came into treatment for. People don't come to treatment to quit. People come to treatment because they have a slew of problems in their life and they're looking to resolve those. And 
everybody listening to this right now, and obviously, Andy, through uh, the, I've read your book and we've talked a lot of times before, you know these things, right? Like they're waking up really tired and, and lethargic and with headaches because they drink too much or their husband or wife just threatened that they're going to leave if they keep drinking this way. Or they almost got fired or they did get fired from their job because of their substance use. Or they're using porn, whatever the thing is that they're doing, it's, those are the things they're looking to fix. We just told them that the way to do that is to measure success by whether or not they've quit. And my point is it works, unfortunately, in, in two ways that are counterproductive to recovery. The first is there are a lot of people with 25, 30 years of recovery and miserable freaking lives. I don't call that successful recovery, right? I'm not saying go back out and drink, but you need to figure out what's not working in your life if you're unhappy in your recovery. There are normally a laundry list of things that need to be addressed. And the second piece is on the flip side of that, there are people who are struggling with abstinence, but are actually progressing really, really well in other areas of their life. And that is not getting acknowledged at all because we don't measure success by whether you're able to hold a job or whether your relationship with your wife has improved, or whether you're better able to take care of your kids or engage in exercise. We don't measure success by those things. So the second myth is the fact that um, we, sh we should stop measuring success of treatment and recovery by abstinence alone. And the last one um, is really interesting to me because you know not everybody really knows what to do about it, but um, it's the fact that, sorry, I'm out. <laughs> So we had, I'm now blanking a little bit. So we had the, the fact that, um, you know, recovery shouldn't be first. Recovery is not the only thing that should be measured. And the numbers that we're getting for recovery uh, for abstinence are just not true. Mm -hmm. I, I cite a lot of research that tells me that the self-report numbers we're getting from abstinence, forget the marketing materials of these treatment centers that are saying they have 80% success rates and all that kind of shit. crap. That, that's crap. If you're listening right now, there is zero treatment anywhere in the world right now that is offering 70, 80, and 90% success rates a year out. It does not exist. Um, those treatment centers hand select who they're going to call. Um, they consider people who don't respond to their messages as not as failures, but as successes. And when people pick up the phone, they just ask them a question. Are you still sober? And they go based on that answer normally. And there is so much research about um, social acceptability and things of that nature that tell us people will lie about their sobriety when they get called from their treatment center or their provider asking them if they're sober or not. But then I cite this really interesting study that they did um, at University of Connecticut. And they actually took participants in a controlled study of, a, of something called contingency management as treatment for alcohol. And so one was a control condition where people had normal sort of uh, treatment as usual. And the other one added this added contingency management thing, which is essentially people get rewarded, literally monetary or uh, valuable rewards for coming to treatment. And when they asked by self-report at the end of the treatment, how many people drank over the month in each one of those conditions, there was a 15% difference. The contingency management group did better. I think it was like 32% of the contingency management uh, group drank, whereas like 47% of the regular group said that they drank. And those are the kind of results we get in studies normally. They, that's how they report them. The one thing about this study is everybody wore a scram ankle bracelet, one of those things that you wear on your ankle, and it measures your alcohol uh, in your sweat every 30 minutes. You want to know the real statistics? And I have this on my free webinar if anybody wants to see the stats on this and all that. 
96 and 97% of people had had at least one drinking episode during the 30 days of the treatment. So even though 47% and 32% said they drank, everybody drank. Literally, they called the study, um, most people continued drinking in outpatient alcohol treatment. So we sit around telling people that they have to abstain, that without committing to abstinence, they, um, they don't have any way to enter recovery. We then tell them to measure their success by recovery. And then we wonder why everybody lies about their abstinence when we didn't give them any other option for success. And so my book essentially says the following, and it kind of, I think it has a lot to do with the way you work with people as well, Annie, is you've got to figure out why your drinking is happening the way that it is. And if you can figure out why your drinking is happening the way that it is and address those things, forget the drinking for a moment, just address the reasons for you. I know a lot of it is about the underlying beliefs about drinking, and that is an important component of it. I go into some other areas, but if you can figure out those pieces and then one by one address those needs, what I find in almost all of my clients is either their drinking reduces and gets back to levels that they're happier about, or they choose to stop drinking because they realize drinking is actually making it all worse. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that's very, um, very similar. I mean, I definitely, I have something in one of my, the alcohol experiments, like the free 30 day program. And it's basically measuring your success, not by abstinent or not abstinent, not by this black or white, like, did I drink? Did I not drink? But you know, how many days, and a lot of people do this and they find it really affirming, like how many days of the month, you know, this month versus last month, and then coming up with percentages and realizing that the percentage increases um, in time that you're not drinking or alcohol-free time, like is really amazing. I mean, if you compare some of these percentages, 80, 90 percentages to anything else, we would say, oh, that's a win. That's huge. You know? Yeah. I think we talked about that at the conference. I think we talked, I've, I've been doing the dual way of measuring your abstinence, consecutive days, abstinent and percent abstinent. I mean, probably since I started treating people, it's probably like seven or eight years ago um, because it's such a powerful tool. You can have a relapse after six months of being sober and one tells you you're a complete failure because you have zero days abstinent. And the other one tells you you've been abstinent for 99% of the last six months. And I got to tell you, I don't really understand why we only use the one that is kind of the most stigmatizing and shaming and difficult to, um, to live up to. Yeah, not to mention then the person like psychologically when somebody's like, okay, well then I just, I mean, there's this thing, what the hell effect it's documented, proven that people will be like, fine, I failed, I failed. I'm just going back to it where if someone's like, oh, I've been 99% successful, that's awesome. So I'm motivated to continue. Like this has been good for me. And it yeah, just- Yeah, the, uh, the abstinence violation syndrome is the name for that. Okay. Um, and it's, I like the what the hell Effect. Well, there's a what the hell effect too. That's like a different thing. It, it's not related oh. to drugs and alcohol. Oh. Oh, um, cool. So it's like a actual, actual thing, but oh, nice. yeah, the abstinence violation syndrome. <laughs> it's yeah. Very... It's the idea of like, well, I already broke my abstinence. I might as well go hard. Right. Because yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going to get to, uh, I'm not going to get to claim my days anymore. I lost it. Might as well go out with a bang. It's, it's an effect that happens to people all the time. And if we said to them instead, all right, you drank today. 
pick it back up tomorrow and you're good and nothing really changed. Like you just went from a hundred percent abstinence in the last six months to 99 point, whatever abstinence in the last six months. We're pretty good. You're still getting an A plus. Let's just keep moving. One of the things that I found really difficult with this kind of alternate approach is, you know, people come into like my program or read my book and it's like, don't stop drinking now. Like don't change your habits get this information, understand what's happening on it, understand these underlying things. And then we'll have a conversation about it, but don't even worry about it now. Let's put it off. And so friends and family seeing this get really concerned and they get really upset. And I've actually had to like make different videos that you can send to your friends and family where I'm sort of explaining to them some of these principles because it has been so drilled into the people who love people who are drinking too much, their minds that if if it isn't quitting, it isn't okay, which is another one of the reasons that um, I know you've talked about the Sinclair method before in Naltrexone, but why that's not accepted widely is because there's drinking involved in it. And so sure. it's just this prevalent idea that. Totally. Anyhow. And that's, so that's why I really hope that this book catches on is just to get like, I call it opening the window. Like if we can crack the window open on people's stronghold and, and stranglehold on abstinence as the only thing that you need to focus on in recovery, that doesn't end up being a problem, right? I mean, and here's what's funny about this. Um, and if you talk to these family members and you said to them, hey, if Johnny drank half as much next month as he drank this much, would you be happy with it? Almost every single one of them would say, oh my God, absolutely. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Right. I mean, Johnny would be excited about it, but all their family was go, wait, half? That's not going to happen. I say, cool, let's, why don't we give it a try, right? I mean, you know this, like the level of success when you start measuring it by percentages is incredible and it completely changes the conversation around the failure. Like, and I, I'll even, you know, I'll give you this example because some people listening right now are, are thinking to themselves, yeah, but those aren't real alcoholics. And that's my favorite argument always. Like, those aren't real alcoholics. First of all, if you found a way to identify the real alcoholics from the not real alcoholics, the, whoever the fake alcoholics are, then please send me a direct message. A Dr. DJF on Instagram, Facebook, what, find me and let me know how you mark that difference because no clinician that I know can tell the difference between those two when you first meet them. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is this. I've had people who blackout drink from seven to four days a week, right? And they go through my course, they read my book, they do one of those things. And they go, you know what? In the last two months, I blacked out once. Some people will say, well, that's terrible. Look, they blacked out on Tuesday, three weeks ago. I go, this person used to black out every single night of the week. Why, in what other area of life do we measure success by perfection? Like, I don't, how do we get to this place in recovery? You know, I, um, I exercise. That's part of what I, I, I tell my clients to do too, to keep your, I mean, obviously there's partly neurobiological and cardiovascular aspects too, but also it passes the time and it makes me feel better about myself and, and is one of those markers for me of whether I'm living life the right way. If I lived in the same mindset around my exercise that people live in their recovery, like if I missed one day or I missed a set or I didn't go as hard this time as I had the time before, if all of a sudden I would have to write off my exercise or my self-care in terms of my, um, my working out, it would be one of the most debilitatingly difficult things to do because I don't know about your listeners and I don't know about you, Annie, but I'm never perfect. I've never been perfect in my life at anything. 
I have like little moments, you know, three to four minute little increments sometimes in a year where I feel like everything is great. Most of the rest of the time I'm juggling like 14 balls and half of them are falling and I'm, you know, I'm trying to catch all of them. I don't understand why we've made the mark, why we've created such a huge barrier for people where it's like, you're such a screw up that the only way for you to feel okay and to have other people understand that you're doing well is you're perfect. That's it. Like if you're anywhere in the middle, you're still a failure until you reach this goal. I think it's asinine. I think it's ridiculous. I think it's, to be honest, it's one of the main reasons why we keep seeing more and more people dying every year is because they see that system and they go, I'm not, I don't want to touch that. I don't want to call myself an addict. I don't want to call myself an alcoholic. There was just a study that was published about how addict and alcoholic are really stigmatizing terms. Um, so, you know, at least my, my TEDx from 2015 is legitimized in, in a study now, but it's like, nobody wants to go into that place. You didn't want to go into that place. You didn't want to call yourself an alcoholic. No, no, definitely not. Yeah. It's one of those terms that I find just really on a personal level, like, you know, labeling and yeah, it's, it's not somewhere. Yeah. And I ask a question of now probably 25,000 people, you know, really, how does that term make you feel like, what if you didn't have to commit to that term? Like, how would it feel? Um, And people feel motivated and empowered and excited to do something about it if they don't have to, like, that's another, like you said, the abstinence guardian is at the, at the gate of people getting help. Like right, right beside him is the labeling guardian. When I went to rehab, the first group they put me in. So after, you know, you go to rehab and they search your bag and then um, they show you your room. And then right after that, I went to a group, the first group I went to. And again, this might've just been my experience because I've only been to treatment twice. Uh, but the first group I went to, they put me in the middle of the circle and they asked me why I'm there. And I gave the answers that every normal human being would give about why I'm there. I got arrested with drugs on me and my lawyer told me that, um, you know, I should really go to treatment and kick my drug habit because otherwise I'm going to spend a lot of time in jail. That wasn't it. Uh, I'm using too much and I really need to stop. That wasn't it. I told them, you know, my parents, I'm disappointing my parents and they're really upset and I need to get my life together. That's not it. And after I tried Lord knows how many answers of what a normal human being would answer about why you go to treatment, I got the answer. And the answer is you're here because you're an addict. And it was like in my head, finally, you know, the, the little, um, can you see the little, um, like language barrier that I had with other people in the industry, um, dropped. And I went, Oh, that's what you wanted me to say. And so I started saying it, but I didn't buy into it. I didn't like it. There were so many things that, um, how did it make you feel? I mean, in the moment, it made me feel good because it let, let me out of the freaking circle where everybody was staring at me for what felt like at 45 minutes. So that's where it started. But I remember going to meetings and having to say that in the beginning, being really resistant to it. And the only people, you know, when I have this conversation and when people respond to the study that just came out, they tell me, I'm not ashamed of addict. I, I wear my addict label proudly. And I say, how many years in recovery do you have? And they go, I've, I've been sober for 18 years. I go, well, that's great, but nobody's talking to you, man. You're not the one that needs help. The people who need help are like the 20 million people out there 
who are looking at addict and alcoholic, et cetera, as a problem. And I'm really glad that you found a solution, but guess what? There are millions of people out there who haven't. And why are we erecting barriers to make it harder and harder for them to get help? Why are you saying to somebody, until you identify as an addict, until you admit that you're powerless, you can't get help? Well, how about, hey, you want help? Come on in. Yeah. Like, Let's like, talk why? about what's going on in your life. Yeah. Like, why, why is that the method that we use primarily? You know, why is the method that we use? Like, again, I could give more analogies, but this doesn't happen in any other field that I know of. There's no, um, there's no other business. There's no other marketing strategy. There's no other medical pursuit where we say to people, you want help, but first you got to do all these other things. If you're a diabetic, your doctor does not dismiss you for eating a brownie. Yeah. They might talk to you about it, which is relevant. They're not going to kick you out of treatment because you had a brownie. That's insane. Yeah. Totally. That's crazy. Um, well, I'm glad you got into your story a little bit, just in case people don't know who you are uh, or haven't heard your, you know, our previous episode. Um, but so, so just to bring that home though, like what, what was your story? Why, why did you end up in rehab? Yeah, I'll, I'll make it short. Um, I was a meth addict. Like I, I discovered drugs and alcohol early, 14, 15 years old. I think that's a pretty common age for people, but you know, I didn't realize this until many, many years later, but I was a really socially anxious kid. Nobody knew it. I played it off really well, apparently, but through a multitude of events, and you can read about some of them in the book. Uh, I didn't make the book really a biography because, you know, people have better things to do with their life than read about me. But I felt awkward around other people and I had ways of handling it that didn't let other people in on the secret. But at 14 years old, when somebody handed me vodka and I had a couple of sips, I stopped being that anxious around people. So I started doing that on the weekends and then 16 or 15 to 16, somebody gave me a joint and I was like, cool. I joined another club of people that now like me. And after a bad breakup and depression, I found stimulants and, and hallucinogens and, and ecstasy. And I was, I was one of those kitchen sink users, like give me whatever I need to feel the way I want to feel and I'll be okay. And then I found meth down the line and I was hooked. I mean, between my ADHD symptom presentation and my wanting to numb my discomfort, meth worked really, really well for me. And I, you know, when I was a drug dealer, I used to um, tell people that everybody has their thing. And you just, if you just find the substance that flips their switch, that'll be, they'll find their next thing. And everybody's looking now, not everybody's looking for drugs. People are looking all over the world, but we're all looking for the things that make us comfortable. And as a drug dealer and, and drug addict, like drugs were really easy because they're quick. Like if I would smoke some meth, I would feel differently. If I would snort some Coke, I would feel differently. If I would drink, I would feel differently. And if I, I would just try to adjust my feelings based on chemicals. Um, and that was the coping that I learned. Now I got arrested, which led me with a really important decision, I'll say. And that was try to keep weaseling my way through what I'd done up to that point or clean up. And it sounds really clear now because I've made this choice and it's 15 years later or 16 years later now. Um, but it wasn't e that easy at the time. The only reason I went to rehab was to avoid like 18 or 15 years in prison. But I got kicked out of rehab for relapsing. And that's when it dawned on me. I was like, oh crap, I have a real problem. Like 
I knew I needed to go to this place to clean up so the judge wouldn't give me 15 years. And yet I screwed up. What's wrong with me? And I was kind of homeless. I was living in my car and, and on friends' couches. And so that's when it really started dawning on me that I had a problem. And I committed to cleaning up for court, like just to clean up. But what happens, and this is why I'm a big supporter of meet people where they're at. Like, what is the reason you want help? And let me help you with that. Oh, you need to say, I needed to save myself from court. Yeah. What, what the judge needed was some abstinence. So that, that was my reason for abstinence, nothing bigger or, or holier than that. But what I found is in order to maintain my abstinence, I had to figure out some tools, some coping strategies. So like I found books and, and movies. I, I had totally forgotten that when I was younger, I really liked reading and going to the movies. They, by the way, also change your feelings, right? If you read a book or go to the movies, it changes your feelings. If you want to feel happier, you go see a comedy and it works. So I, I use those as coping strategies. And I started growing my, my arsenal of things to do. Um, but the reason I ended up in this camp is I'm not sober, right? I was an, a meth addict. Um, I literally used to smoke an eight ball of meth a day. For people who are not familiar with meth, that's like three to $400 of meth every single day. Now, I was a drug dealer. So I had a lot of drugs and a lot of money. That wasn't, it wasn't a financial burden or anything, but I was using constantly. The only time that I would sober up was when I slept. Um, and it sounds insane to me to say that out loud now, but I was never sober for about five years of my life. I was never sober. And so after three years of sobriety and cleaning my act up and um, my drug testing and all that stuff uh, ending with court and all that, I decided to take that experiment. They tell you, you they can't take because it didn't, the language I was now researching addiction and studying addiction in, in graduate school. And it, I started questioning whether the reality everybody had been handing me was the right one. And I didn't do it abruptly. I talked to my parents and my sponsor and my girlfriend at the time and everybody like that. But I, I had a drink and um, I very gradually introduced alcohol back into my life. And that was 11 years ago. And if anybody's wondering, it's fine. It's going okay. I'm now like nobody in the world would recognize that I'm an ex-drug addict if I didn't do this all the time and tell people about it. But that's why I do it is because people have this notion of drug addicts. I don't look like what you expect an ex-meth addict to look like. But newsflash, here I am. Uh, and I know a lot of other ex-meth addicts that look totally normal, but they're too ashamed to tell you about it so they don't. And I knew that I wasn't abstinent, but I didn't, I guess I didn't understand the bigger implications of it. But then when I was doing my studies at UCLA and realized that there are a host of people who are not entering treatment because of the abstinence barrier, I decided to go out there and start doing some work to help those people, the people who are, they know they need help. They understand something needs to change. They know life cannot continue the way that it is right now, but they haven't bought into the whole thing. I've got to quit everything forever. And I just started seeking ways to help them. And, you know, through my research and the work that I've done at UCLA, I kind of found four barriers I focus on. And those are the shame, the cost, the logistics, and the, um, the abstinence component. And I've kind of made it my mission to just find the people who need help and help them. That's awesome. That's so cool. Well, thank you so much. I mean, this has been really great as always. It's, it's so interesting. I think it's a much needed part of this, this entire conversation, maybe the most needed. So I, I really appreciate it. I, I like, um, you know, I just very naturally came into this without any knowledge. I, I was the opposite. I'd never been in, and I mean, I didn't even really understand what the word recovery even meant. I still yeah. wonder if I do understand what that means entirely, but I had never been to a meeting. I'd never, you know, I came out this from a completely 
out of the of the community area and so for me it was it's been very jarring to realize just how how we are serving people badly by making it a black and white conversation by making the barrier to entry so high by putting this label um, as one of the necessary things in order to get help. And yeah, I'm with you. I think that, that the conversation needs to shift. Yeah. Um, look, that's what I love about our connection. I mean, when we connected at the harm reduction conference and after, I think there's a beauty to coming at it from the outside because you get a fresh lens on things. And I've sort of had to fight my colleagues to accept, and some of them still think I'm crazy, but to accept that what I'm doing is at least somewhat legitimate. You didn't have to have that fight, but you didn't know what world you were walking into, right? So you kind of, you said, well, this worked for me. Let me talk to some people about how it worked. And you didn't realize that there was actually an entire world that essentially was saying that the way you did it couldn't work. Right. Right. Essentially what they told you is that your experience is impossible and you're, and you didn't know that when you wrote your book. I started book. getting letters to that exact effect. Like, do not publish this book. Do not do what you're doing. This is wrong. You will hurt people, sort of stuff like that. You will kill people. Why? Because what they really need to do is go to an AA meeting. And it's like, I don't know. I mean, I have a newsflash. Anybody listening to this podcast at this point for sure understands that AA exists. There are tens of thousands of meetings in the world. If you don't know about AA already, then your book, my work, is not going to let somebody know about it. I don't even need the AA meetings to end. Whoever wants to go to AA can go to AA. That is not the point of this. The reason I love the work you do, the work I do, the work some of the other kind of, I'll call them trailblazers or whatever in the field are doing is what people need is an approach that speaks to them, right? I know the people who, who get attracted to me. The people who get attracted to the work that I do are either um, pretty like outgoing, hard hitting, motivated, successful people who just cannot lick this alcohol thing. Like it just, or the drug or the sex, the porn, whatever it is that's happened, the food, the overeating. It's like, there's this one area of their life that they are, cannot figure out how to get control of. And the notion for them of having to cross over into this other world of I'm an alcoholic, they don't even understand what that means. They look at me like, I'm not powerless over anything else in my life. Why would I admit that I'm powerless over this? Everybody else tells them, just admit it. Once you admit it, everything will get better. And I say, well, let's look at your experience. What is it that's driving it? So those are the people that kind of that congregate towards me. But there are a lot of other people. There's Hip Sobriety. Stanton Peel has his um, uh, process, life process program. You know, Alan Carr's got his stuff. Like all these people have different programs. And there are in the world overall, probably about 300 million people struggling with this how we can get to a place where we would assume, I don't even know how anybody assumes this, that there's one system, one program, one approach that would be good for all those people is just beyond me. So when people read your stuff, when they listen to your blog, when they check out the alcohol experiment, some of them click to information and content and ways of looking at their life that they've never heard of before. And I know you've gotten these emails. I get them all the time, but these emails from people saying, Oh my God, I'm, I've been doing this for three days with you. And I look at my entire life in a completely different way. And Oh, by the way, I'm drinking like half as much or, or I stopped drinking or whatever their end goal is. Right. Yeah, absolutely. All the time. 
And even people who, you know, didn't even come into it for them, you know, emails from people who are like, wow, I, I read this for my brother. And guess what? I don't like beer anymore. Five stars. <laughs> you know, it's pretty funny. That's awesome. So um, for me, it's like, we, if we have to put up with the emails and the Facebook comments telling us that we're crazy and all that kind of stuff, um, in order to get those other emails from the people who are telling us that we've changed their lives, then so be it. You know, it's all good. For sure. Um, for sure. It's worth it. That's awesome. Well, it's such a pleasure. So one more question, where can people find you? Where can people get the book? Stuff like that. Yeah. So finally, my marketing people are telling me I need a website called adjaffe.com. Um, because whenever I do one of these things, apparently that's the first thing people are looking for is the name. So we're working on it, right, Savannah? We're working on it. There's, a, <laughs> there's somebody working on actually putting that together. And so on that, you'll be able to see my courses and my podcast and the book and all those things. Um, so djaffy.com will be one of them. But then we also have a website called theabstinencemyth.com. And if you look at Ignited, I have a podcast with my wife called Ignited that we do a lot of the work on. So if awesome. you search at any of those formats, you'll find me. And, you know, I, I just urge everybody, whether you find me or not, like, I don't even care if it's me that you do this work through. If you or somebody else that you're struggling, that you know is struggling, find options. There are dozens, if not a couple of hundred options. Um, just because one thing didn't work, don't stop, right? It's a, I don't know how long it took you to learn how to ride a bike. It's okay if you fall and you miss. It doesn't end up working out exactly the way you want it to. Just adjust. Try something else. Try adding something else to it. Try reading another book. Not More than 95% of people who struggle with any form of addiction at one point recover eventually. It's all about not stopping. It's all about not believing that because this one approach didn't work for you, then nothing else will work. Absolutely. Such a good point. Such a good point. Well, thank you so much. It's really, really a pleasure as always. Thanks so. for having me, Annie. And we'll put all the links in the show notes for sure. All right. Have a good day. This has been Annie Grace with This Naked Mind Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can learn more at thisnakedmind.com. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe as it really helps us spread the word.